can assure you, I can go, you know, on very large platforms and talk about very concrete ideas. I can try to tell you why I believe that there are three generations of matter, why it's chiral, et cetera, et cetera. And I promise you that the very weird behavior is that people don't take it seriously because what they're really trying to do is not ask questions. They're really trying to say, how do I make this problem go away so I can get back to the cargo cult science that I've made a career around inside of a large community? That's what's dangerous. Welcome everyone to this Physics Insider Battle Royale edition of Into the Impossible. Your host, Brian Keating, moderates a lively debate between physics iconoclast and audience favorite, Eric Weinstein, and theoretical physicist, UC San Diego professor, Dan Green. In Brian's previous episode with Dan, entitled, Physics is Fine, Dan discussed his Twitter storm, touting his list of the most significant fundamental physics results of the last 40 years that did not win a Nobel Prize, arguing that physics is doing just fine. Au contraire. Are physicists stuck in old paradigms? Where are the breakthroughs in particle physics and unified theories? Are precious scientific resources being spent on the wrong things with outdated standards? Have we lost creative initiatives? Are theorists doubling down on their own worn out traditions, shutting out newer independent thinking? Is quantum gravity at a dead end? And have you applied to graduate school lately? Has academia become too limiting for its own good? Decide this fundamental physics fight for yourself as you stretch the boundaries of your mind with this lively debate between Dan Green and Eric Weinstein, refereed by your host, Brian Keating, on The State of Physics. And please, win, lose, or draw, if you value intellectual honesty and thoughtful dialogue, reward us with a five-star rating. And do let us know what you think about this episode and any suggestions to make the show better in a review. Professor Keating reads them all, like this one from P. Gallet. Any sufficiently intelligent podcast listener will find Brian Keating indistinguishable from fascinating, accessible, and fun. It's like magic. And from Alex Bills, unbelievably fantastic. Professor Keating is an absolute gem, and the guests he gets for the show are top of the line, a must-watch for both physicists and the general audience alike. And now, get ready to rumble on the state of physics. Just fine or stagnant and in need of a shakeup? You decide as we go into the impossible with Dan Green and Eric Weinstein. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Recently had... Uh, a very, very popular episode said uh, that we called Physics is Fine, and it was based on a Twitter thread storm that came out uh, at the end of December in which Dan highlighted discoveries in physics that had not been really rewarded with the accolade of the Nobel Prize yet, uh, perhaps never, but but at least as of the moment, had not been uh, uh, rewarded or with that particular remuneration. And there's been a lot of controversy, as I said, around the description of physics as having stagnated most most forcefully or vocally by Sabina Hassenfelder also eight-time guest on the podcast which is just just behind Eric's record set uh, for this particular event but I wanted to have both uh, gentlemen here together to discuss the future of physics as they see it 
and what's right with physics, what we could do with physics or what we could change or modify, what opportunities there are, and uh, sort of moderate that from the perspective of a simple experimental cosmologist and my perspective on things. So we're going to talk about uh, particle physics, experiment theory. We're going to talk about unification of forces and fields, perhaps. And uh, we're going to have it, as I said, a nice clean fight. We're going to go TOE to TOE. Uh, and I did it. I made that joke. You didn't think I would. So uh, I think I'll start with uh, with Dan, just to recapitulate from our previous episode that aired last week. You can find it uh, in the channel archives called Physics is Fine. Uh, what, was the, what was the motivation for that particular tweet storm? Um, yeah, so thanks for having me on. It's nice, nice to get a chance to talk to both of you. Um, so the, my, the motivation behind the thread was to articulate some of the things that I've picked up on being an active researcher that I thought were, you know, important events for me in understanding how the world works and making progress in clearly observational topics like cosmology, um, but also important theoretical ideas um, that, that had a huge impact on how I see the world that I didn't think were always uh, well understood or appreciated by people, like even other researchers outside of their own fields. So it was just to kind of communicate the value of what had been happening. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, as a researcher, it's really important to know, you know, what are what am I aiming for? Like, what would be a result that would really stand out amongst the best results of the past five years? You know, we'd all like to be Einstein, but just for me, I just, you can't always, uh, you won't always achieve those, but maybe having a hierarchy of, of results um, in your mind is really important for just gauging, you know, where progress, you know, what counts as progress, what kind of progress is going on. And Eric, you've been interacting. Let me change here. You've been interacting and engaging with this said tweet, and also with our friend Sabina and Martin Bauer, who generously provided a book called Nobel Dreams, which is somewhere around here. Um, what was your reaction to this? You had sort of a uh, a provocative comment that we shouldn't we should just get past the point that yes, there's been a lot of progress in condensed matter physics and theoretical astrophysics, experimental cosmology. What what are you most interested in in doing to move the conversation forward from your perspective? Thanks for asking. So I, I'd like to do this in the uh, of the clickbaity kind of thumbnail sketches. I was outraged, Dan, frankly, by this tweet storm. Sorry, it's going to get a little, little contested. Uh, I'm bored by all the opening moves. Uh, we have a suite of moves where somebody says there's a crisis in fundamental physics, and then somebody mishears it and says, you have no idea what's going on in material science. It's never been a more exciting time. You say, that's not what I said. Well, who's to say what's fundamental? Is cosmology fundamental? So this is the sort of weird dance that people get into at the beginning. And I've said, I'd rather just say Roy Lopez Spassky variation and get to the middle, middle game rather than wasting time on the intro. So I think it would be appropriate, given that I'm not a physicist, to seed a bunch of things. First of all, being that I'm not a physicist. I think that the issue is not about physics in the large. It's really about the sort of core central issue, which people are very squeamish about now because nobody wants to say that any field is any more important than any other, which is ridiculous. There is a central core of fundamental physics, which is the thing that scratches the itch we have when we're not physicists and we wanna know what is the universe? Who am I? Where? Why am I here? How does the world work? What is this place made of? And those questions have stagnated and I'm 
sort of somewhat arbitrarily, but not that arbitrarily, tying that to February 1st of 1973 with the publication of the Kobayashi Muskawa paper enlarging the Kabibo angle to three generations. And I believe there are eight particle theorists left on Earth who have won a Nobel Prize. Now, that also causes a certain variation in the opening because somebody will say, well, you seem to be very hung up on the Nobel Prize. It's like, no. Not more than me. <laughs> but um, the fact is, is that the Nobel Prize is a somewhat conservative measure of progress. And as a conservative measure of progress, when you're down to your last eight people who have proven that they are physicists by being able to make contact with reality at that level, um, 50 years is a long time. I think the longest recent drought of this kind was between 1928 and 47 with the advent of QED by Dirac is the first real quantum field theory before the sort of primitive renormalization program came in and cleared up the ability to compute. So I absolutely celebrate Dan's tweet storm. I think that it had lots of great papers, many of which I knew nothing about. So I educated myself and I got a chance to look at, at Dan's work a, a bit. Um, but that said, one of the things I think that tweet storm did, and I think Dan acknowledged as much, is that it didn't clearly state the um, the results that would constitute unambiguous change in fundamental physics. That is, what is what is the field content of the world? What stuff is it that's running around? Are there new things that we haven't figured out? Um, what constitutes the new interactions of the stuff that we have and the stuff that may come to be? And the other issue of unification um, would be space spaces. So we currently have something called space-time, and it's not clear whether there is a problem with space-time itself. So I would say that Dan did a great service talking about all the sorts of things that are not in crisis. And I wish to seed instantly that it is not that physics is in crisis, which is the thing that everybody can understand easily, but it is the core central issue of what physics can be is meant to be that excites our imaginations and our passions, answers philosophical questions, that is in a prolonged state of, and I would say, unnecessary self-inflicted crisis. Well, just before Dan, you get the opportunity to address that. So I, I recently, are you familiar with this essay by uh, David Foster Wallace called This is Water? You're drinking some vodka, so hopefully you're you're familiar with it. Uh, so it's it's a parable of these these two fish that are young fish, and they're they're in the ocean, they're swimming around, and um, all of a sudden an older fish comes by and says, "Hey boys, how's the water?" And he goes on his way. And then the two fish look at each other. And one says to the other one, "What the hell's water? Uh, is that possible?" Let me ask Dan. For, are we obsessed with space time? Are we in space time in the same way that these fish are in water? And are we? So are, are we rightfully um, to be maybe ashamed or view it as something to be dispensed with altogether, as I think Einstein or Lorenz or both of them or neither of them or Nemus have claimed? What is space-time? Why, why is that sort of the, the pinnacle, and how can you see that getting under Eric's skin? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure, that's the one of the great questions of science. Uh, so in we think – that space-time probably emerges from something in a lot of examples we've studied, like string theory, where, you know, our ultimate hope for resolution of the singularity at the beginning of, you know, beginning of time is probably something non-geometric. There's, if we understand what's going on there, it will not be in terms of geometry, at least of the kind of space-time uh, we experience. Um, 
I think the thing I would say is, in response to you, are we unnecessarily obsessed with it? I do think that that there are questions of this nature, like you know, what was what happened before the Big Bang, and some of those questions we don't have the tools to answer. Um, we don't have data to help guide us. And even if someone writes down a theory that works, like we may have no way to test it. Someone can come up with another theory. And so there is a lot of like, we're not guaranteed that we're going to be able to answer all the questions that, you know, are deeply held <laughs> questions of, you know, humanity going back eons. But I do think that like, so there are aspects of these questions. We, I don't think we're guaranteed that we can make progress on all the questions we'd like to. Um, and, you know, what is happens at space time when it ceases to be, you know, the, the kind of thing we experience on our scale, does it continue to exist down to these, these scales? You know, we'd love to be able to answer that question, but I also don't think we necessarily are promised that we'll ever have answers or at least in hundreds of years time scale. Um, and so I don't see that as the benchmark at which all decisions of progress have to have to be made. And I, you know, I, I guess when I hear that, I, I check it against things that I believe. So one, when you say geometric, it's not that it will be non-geometric, it's that it won't be the specific geometry and you sort of corrected that mid-flight. So if if, uh, if Albert Einstein told us to embrace, embrace semi-Romanian geometry, it's not simply going to be a semi-Romanian manifold, which is basically four degrees of freedom together with uh, one set of rulers and uh, you know, four rulers for each degree of freedom and six protractors between them. So you have 10 variables that get chosen by an equation. And then that thing, to the extent that I understand your, your, your point, it's that there are these singularities. One is at the beginning of time, if you will, uh, in the standard Friedman, Robertson, Walker model. And the other one is at the base of a black hole, um, which is the Schwarzschild sing singularity. And one modern interpretation is that the singularities result from crimes and sins that we don't even know we've committed. And so we're trying to figure out what to do as penance uh, so as to remove these singularities. But if I listen to what you're saying very carefully, um, I see something which I'm very alarmed by, which is the, you're not suspicious, either one of you, enough of the language before speaks to one dimension of time and only R1 has an ordering uh, in the absence of other structure. R2, R3, R4 don't have such a thing. So when there is an arrow of time, it makes good sense ordinally to say nothing of cardinally um, to speak of before. But if the ultimate structure, uh, as I believe, has multiple dimensions of time, you will find that the crutch of saying initial conditions has to be replaced by something like boundary conditions. And in such a situation, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that we have the Lagrangians, the equations, the field content, which is the science, but we also have this way of talking around it. And the way in which we have of talking around it carries a tremendous amount of weight. And a lot of that, uh, I think, is grooving each generation to fail as its successors failed, because what we're doing is we're putting a tremendous amount of pressure saying, if you don't learn to speak the way you, we do, you will not be able to survive to adulthood to have your own uh, thesis students. And therefore, you, you had better learn to talk as we do. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm very concerned about. I don't believe in, that before is as simple as we're making it out to be. So I, I guess I would, I would push back on that. I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, 
we can use it's helpful to use everyday language and then add okay it could be different right like it's helpful to start from the things we know are true and we can ask questions like could there be extra dimensions of time or you know even just the evolution from is do we know that quantum mechanics is the only possible way that the world could work there are lots of people and and i include myself in them that are interested in pushing the boundaries but it start it also helps to start from a place of what we know like i think there are plenty of people who throw away literally all of physics and they go well i don't want to be constrained by the structures of physics and it really hurts their careers because they can't they don't even understand basic physics which stops them from being able to make meaningful progress because if you can't if you can't explain what we already understand you can't extend the structure in new and interesting ways so with the example of multiple time directions like People do consider this like in, you know, res you know, well-respected theoretical physics groups for many different motivations, either purely just as a tool to understand physics, but in other cases, really, because they're interested in like, what would it mean and what are the implications? But since we don't like all of our life experience is still rooted in one time, like I think it's still reasonable to say to cover that. I, for sure you have yeah, to recover yeah. that but it, at the same time i don't think like i think it's good to establish that like we have a language that works well for describing a lot of the universe and that we talk about how we break that those those things in controlled ways so generalizations of say like number of time dimensions or say changes to the rules even so we're not even doing quantum mechanics like those things are really interesting directions, but they're very constrained because most of them don't even describe daily life in any meaningful way. Like most mutations in biology lead to things getting far worse rather than better. It's a rare mutation that works. But what you said is not actually true in science. It's often the case that people make huge breakthroughs because they don't understand the errors of a previous generation. So for example, you know, you had the stray hydrogen atom on the nucleotides that was in all the books in the wrong place. And it happened that Watson and Crick were in an office with Jerry Donahue, who said, you know, all the books are wrong. And if you look in the double helix, it's about, you know, a page and a half or something before Jim Watson figures out the hydrogen bonds that explain the Chargaff uh, equimolar relations. And you have similar things if you were, you know, in the 1940s trying to study electromagnetism and its effect on electrons, you would almost certainly think that it was the electric and magnetic fields that impacted an electron being passed around the solenoid. And surprisingly enough, in the 50s, we learned that there were classical consequences of electromagnetism that we had really wrong because we put all of our weight, if you will, on the E and B fields of the electromagnetism and not on the electromagnetic four potential, which in fact is something which is not a convenience product meant to recover classical electromagnetism. It in fact has weight uh, as was shown um, by Bowman Aronoff. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I, I mean, I don't disagree with that point of view. I would just say that 
the there's not a, I don't think there's a lack of contrarianism in the field. And I don't think that that I don't think there's people feel they're unable to take take risks. I think the, the problem is that, like, there's no con- if you don't understand the starting point, it's very difficult to take risks that are in a productive way. Right. So if I don't understand why we think the world, what, how the world works in this room, it's very difficult to think, well, what are the limitations of how I break the structures that I understand? So I would say, you know, people understanding, you know, the, you know, trying to propose, you know, generalizations in all kinds of directions, almost all of them are doomed to fail from the start. And I think many people were like, well, that's, you know, people trying to put unnecessary constraints on me. I'm a free thinker. It's like, no, that's not people trying to put it. That's reality putting constraints on you. Yeah. And I think that's, we have to separate. There's definitely sociological challenges for right. young people to do really creative things, but there's also just reality that presents a real challenge to Let's being super creative. Cause and, I don't, I, I just have a completely different impression of your field from outside, which is people come to me and they say, I can't afford to work on what I r- really want to work on. I don't believe many of the things that I'm being fed with my mother's milk um i can understand them but every time i deviate more than a certain amount or in a way that is not thought well of by the community all conversations die off and i'm cautioned that this is an extremely brave thing to do in the sense of bravery is stupidity and i think that what you're saying is a hope and a wish which uh, in a few cases i don't want to say that it's 100 percent across the board but i do believe that in part um, we don't have this freedom in this field and we don't have the freedom to continue to get engagement from the community because in general, we get these mega programs that are cropping up. And in the mega programs, there are all sorts of assumptions that have been layered uh, on, which are not proven. And, you know, I, I would love to apply this rule to some of the ma- major mega programs and say, hey, you're in the wrong number of dimensions. You've got the wrong signature. You've got the wrong symmetries. Uh, you got the wrong field content, and you know it. It becomes this thing where the person then says, "Oh no, no, it's a toy theory." You know, I, I'm in a, a small Euclidean number of dimensions with SU two as the symmetries of the universe, and I'm I'm super symmetric. I'm doing all of this stuff, which is not the physical world that we live in so far as we understand it. And the idea is that that person is saying, "I wish to suspend." the normal rules of science because I'm doing toy stuff in order to learn about the structures that are going to elucidate the actual one physical universe that we're in. Now, when you do that, I understand that. But what we're talking about is something like scientific immunity. And if you've ever met somebody with diplomatic immunity, some of them have the feeling that they can park wherever they want to and they don't have to pay fines um, and that they're not subject to the laws of the land that they inhabit. And what I'm trying to say is you cannot have these mega programs uh, casually imposing uh, the strictest expectations on its competitors and then giving itself a permanent free pass to go on for decades and decades about nothing. Well, just to push back with loving respect. Uh, so so that's I have exa- two actual physicists against one non-physicist. I like my odds. I know, but you, you, you're you an honorary physicist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you you're an honorary physicist. Uh, so, you know, you're taking basically the opposite point, if I'm wrong, correct me, but of, of this guy up here, not Weinstein, but Einstein, 
uh, you know, who never thought any of his predictions would be verifiable, and yet they proved to be very, very useful approximations, toy models. Uh, look at Schwarzschild. I mean, we already mentioned the Schwarzschild singularity. Uh, that was thought to be, you know, completely impractical, uh, never detectable. Einstein subsequently also disavowed the uh, the detectability of gravitational waves, gravitational lensing, and yet it was remarkably prescient in that the toy model works in, you know, basically 99.999% of all situations where we could ever hope to apply it. So toy models are extremely powerful. And, and just to add on to that, um, you and I were talking before we, Dan came in about, you know, string theory in that very realm. Um, you know, sometimes it is useful to take a and again, I'm speaking as a simple experimental cosmologist, not a theorist, uh, but to take a toy model or take something that we know uh, works in certain situations like the Klein-Gordon equation, uh, which it doesn't apply, unless I'm wrong, to any real particles, but it is useful to apply um, uh, in a way of generating other solutions. Well, it sort of does with, with modifications. With, with, with an idealized modification. That's proving my point. It's a toy model. So what's wrong with toy models? We, we oh, get no, a lot that, of mileage. Nothing's wrong with toy models. You're saying that you're being excluded or maybe not part of the physics program unless you engage in something that... I don't think that's... This is just uncomfortable because it's... A, like, let me begin by saying string theory can't hurt anyone, right? There's, string theory is a set of ideas. It's a constellation of hypotheses, and it's a place to play. There's nothing wrong with string theory, nor loop quantum gravity. The problem is with... And, it, and I don't want to put it all on string theorists. It's, the problem is quantum gravity sociology, which has blown a physics-shaped hole uh, in fundamental physics and replaced it with a set of double standards in which I want to know what are the rules. If the rules are we all get to play, then hot, hot diggity dog, let's all play. And if the rules are... Um, we should be very careful that things agree with experiment and any attempt to talk about something as uh, that is violated, you know, like as soon as Dirac finds that a times b is not equal to b times a when he tries to take the square root of your your Klein-Gordon equation, um, you know, it's a it's a short period of time before he says, well, maybe a and b aren't numbers, they're matrices, and then it's like, okay, so you did something that was wrong that didn't make any sense, and then it did make sense later. The problem that I have is, is that we have one set of players that is functioning in some sense as both the referees and a team. So imagine that you're playing in the NFL and you've got the Foot Locker sends a team. So all their employees are dressed in vertical black and white stripes. And they, they take the field. And they're not particularly talented. But the one thing that they have That'd is- be worse than on Sunday's Super Bowl final call. <laughs> what, the, what they do is that they start saying, you know, offsides. <laughs> you're like, what- why do you guys get to do this? You're not, you're playing on the field. You're not in a position to do that. The problem is the cancerous sociology of quantum field theory, because this field is given excuses that the rest are not, and it imposes the most strict at, uh, attempts to impose um, like scientific falsifiability and to tell people that you're out, you're out, you're out. Well, 70 years later, after Bryce DeWitt enters an anti-gravity competition with his famous essay, we're still wrestling with a product that doesn't ship, which is imposing the standards on other fields. And it's really important to blow that up in our lifetime so that we can all move forward together. So I, I actually celebrate what you're saying about toy models. I just wanna make sure that we don't have scientific immunity for quantum gravity. 
Well, I just want to point out that Bryce DeWitt's book on on anti-gravity is so engaging that you just can't put it down. Uh, Dan, I want to ask you, uh, is this a, is, are we having a discussion about sociology or are we going to talk about the actual uh, ideas behind these, these, these issues? Because I, when you and I spoke, I said, when you guys get to, I don't know what you guys do over there in theory, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is someone's got to keep an eye on you. Um, you know, I know in a, we don't we don't pick a person, we don't pick a field when we want to hire a young professor. We want to hire you. I was part, you know, of the milieu. I didn't actually, I wasn't on the committee, but it was part of that milieu. So I didn't say, oh, I really want someone who you know has worked on on, on string theory. No, it's 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 a sort of a target of opportunity in some cases. Uh, we were stealing you away from another university, but but the point is, is the sociology inside the the host organism, or is it something that is perceived as as being afflicting it from outside from an outside? So I. I'm going to agree with Eric in some ways and disagree in others, but let me, let me, let me, um, let's start with where you agree. I'll start, I'll start where we we agree, which is like, so the, the problem when a field gets too big is that it doesn't have to refer outside. Right. And that's, I think what you're getting at, which is like, we make our own rules. We play by our own rules and I never have to make contact with, not just with nature, but the rest of the world. Right. I'm big enough. And, and, you know, we can go to conferences with a thousand people and never talk to anyone who's spoken a different language or thought about another problem. So I think I'm, I'm saying that because what I really see is makes the difference most of the time between the, the areas where the toy model makes progress or the people working on the toy model really are meaningfully moving the field forward right. is their ability to to both what they're working on connects to other fields, but they're they're also able to understand what other fields need from them and how their toy models are addressing that. Right. So, it, so for someone working on let's say quantum field theory in two dimensions, like you could do it and it you could do it in such a way that's like why are these people wasting all their time? But then there are other people that are go that were working on quantum field theory in two dimensions who are like condensed matter physicists. And they were like, you know, no, we're working on this because these are solvable models of phase transitions and I can Hallelujah. make a material. And, and it's the ability to communicate outside of your area that's really important for the health of the, the health of the field and to keep those toy models coming in contact with nature, right? If you're not interacting with the people for whom your toy model is supposed to be making contact, then it really is useless, right? If you're not, I mean, maybe it'll be useful eventually someone I, I don't hundred years later. Useless. But well, it, it, I'm, but, but I do think it's valuable to both parties, the people who are more in touch with nature and the people who are just trying to make progress to communicate with each other in a productive way. And where, where I will agree with you is that and I'm not just going to say string theory. I think many fields reach a point that they're so self-sustaining that nobody in that field feels the need to talk outside I'm of the I'm happy not to say string theory once yeah. for the rest yeah, of this. That's I, would, I want to talk about quantum gravity as the problem, but, which subsumes string theory, and it doesn't point the finger at string theory in particular. Yeah, but I, I would say, like, again, and that doesn't, I would not even, I would say it's true even in areas that are experimentally driven. Like, this phenomenon of a field becoming big enough that, it does not have to refer to right. nature or progress or anything. And it just, as long as we're making everyone in our community happy and we're all speaking the same language, then we're all doing but fine. You, are and, you immiserating other communities? Am I? Uh, um, no, no. In these large programs, I'm even somewhat understanding if you guys want to take some portion of the resources and go off into a cloistered monastery and talk to each other for 40 years, as long as it's not too much, that's fine. It's when you start telling other people that they're stupid, and when you t- to say that I don't know why anyone else works on anything else that's dumb, 
And then you start talking about the fact that uh, you, you play up all of your competitor field's problems. You don't own your own. What you're talking about is sort of a scientific pathology. And our, uncomfort, our discomfort in dealing with this phenomenon causes us to do proxy arguments. One proxy argument is quantum gravity. The problem with it is, is it doesn't make contact with the experiment. Come on. Right? Or it doesn't fit the scientific method. Oh, you're going to repeat the Big Bang and just so you have large N? Give me a break. Right? Another one is beauty. Sabina is very you know, focused on beauty. Well, she's, she's doing that in a way to avoid the head-on collision with what she's really trying to say. I'm not trying to avoid the head-on collision. What I'm trying to say is we cannot afford for an imperial culture to be telling other cultures that are trying to work on the same problems that they cannot exist because you've got everything wrapped up. And, and, and literally, we have a situation in which um, your, you know, your colleague, uh, David E. Kaplan, was recently featured in an interview where he just let loose. And I, I know David, who did the film Particle Fever. And what he was talking about was the feeling that he was dumb and stupid and couldn't get something. And we used to have a game called Tag War in my neighborhood. A new kid would come. We'd say, let's play tag war. And they would try to figure out the rules of tag war. And more or less, it was hazing and abuse. And after about two and a half, three weeks, where we changed the rules over and over again, so that it finally person says, I don't understand the rules. It feels like there are no rules. That's when they became part of the neighborhood because it, was, it stood for the game without any rules. That was what tag war meant. And my feeling about this is um, we have a tag war problem coming out of quantum gravity that is stalling the core field that has to get addressed in the lifetime of the people who are still there who created the problem because good science requires that they go back to their statements where there are a lot of people who are no longer here, people who began their careers in the 1980s. How old were you during the anomaly cancellation, 1984? Uh, two years old. There you go. You have no idea what it was like. And you can read about it, but the fact of the matter is it was an absolutely brutal thing. And, you know, Brian Green and I have been having a back and forth about this. He got asked on Kurt Jaimungle's program about what are these issues that people keep talking about. And he said, oh, well, you know, we were very enthusiastic. And I heard you say this thing about, you know, particle theorists are like bosons. They all line up and sort of find the same things interesting. No, North Koreans line up and find the same things interesting. Iraqis under Saddam Hussein all voted the same way. You have a problem, which is why they're behaving like bosons rather than fermions and why the fermions are being, you know, evolutionary theory has a concept called interference competition, where if you have one animal that tries to keep another animal from being able to get to the salt lick or the water or the food, then that other animal that's being kept from that dies off. And that's how we've lost these people. There are so many theories and interesting people who are no longer with us because of this mad grab for resources, quoting something like white man's burden, you know, manifest destiny. It's, it's, we, it is our manifest destiny to change the problem. We used to have a concept called unified field theory or unification. That went away and it got supplanted by something called quantum gravity. And that became the thing that got rolled out through Dennis Overby in the New York Times, repeated in Science Magazine ad nauseum until everyone was brainwashed thinking, you know, the problem of our time is quantum gravity. And it's not. I mean, are you saying we need you know literal tribunals to get Edward Witten and uh, and uh, Polchinski? Well, we can't get Polchinski anymore. But uh, what what is it? 
what's really bothering you? I, I understand that this is that these are challenges. These are it's frustrating to have a field that's had from one perspective the uh, a lack of progress, but entrenched because of the prestige of the previous practitioners. But again, I like to point this out. Yeah, in 1859, there was a very bright guy by the name of James Clerk Maxwell who worked very hard and had a, a successful model of electromagnetic wave propagation uh, that in the sense that it predicted experimental observables, but it was based on whirlpools and eddies and and uh, all sorts of other things to substantiate an ether-like material for it. To, so he was right uh, for the wrong reasons or wrong for the right reason. Galileo, same thing. He thought the tides were caused by the Earth's rotation. They're really caused by the moon. So in other words, why, why is it so important that we, we punish everything? Edward Witten. I mean, I, I would it's like to be punished. <laughs> Maybe Edward Witten has something to say about this behavior. And I would love to hear Kumran and Brian Green and Lenny Susskind, uh, as well as, uh, you know, Natty Seiberg and Eva Silverstein. It would be great to have these people in a dialogue. You know, Natty Seiberg said something. He said, string theorists are very arrogant. If somebody comes up with something that makes progress that isn't string theory, we'll just say it's string theory. And I'm like, no, you, th there's a concept called mustn't. You don't get to do that stuff. You're in the wrong field if that's how you feel. And I, I know Natty, we, we have a cordial relationship. Um, you don't get to play that way. And you don't get to call people stupid unless you're going to back it up. Or it can, it can come back at you. I mean, I would be happy to talk to Lenny Susskind and talk to him about all the people he's insulted over the years. Because he's very open about it. He's not hiding it. Just say, you're an old man. You're at the end of your career. How'd it go? What happened? Did, 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 did you make the progress that your friend Feynman made or Murray Gelman or any of the people that you knew from a previous era? That's and my feeling about standard. this, pardon me? That's a very high standard. We're ta let's talk about you know the A-team, the Institute for Advanced Study, at some point recently had Robert Dykraff, a string theorist, as its director, Natty Seiberg, a string theorist, um, Edward Witten, uh, Juan Maldacena, and then Nima was sort of off a, a little bit in non-necessarily quantum gravity land. That's an enormous investment in quantum gravity. And the, the problem that I'm having with this is, you know, Dan Friedan, a prominent uh, quantum gravity researcher, talked about this openly. He said, science only works when we actually go back and look at how we've behaved and confront our own failures. This is the same thing with the bootstrap method. I feel like what we're doing is we're living the Jeffrey Chu nightmare all over again. Do you feel like that's the challenge so, that we're facing in I, theoretical? I, well, I'd, I'd first like to, to just, uh, like, I think we can agree that there can be sociology problems, but I would also say, like, as a young person, I find the same level of saying that there's been no progress in physics you know, it's insulting to young people who are not part of this, who feel like we're making real progress, who see real progress happening. Seated, and to say, seated. but if, but at the same time, if you say you're, you're going back to like a generate a much older generation and you're saying, and we're painting everyone who's come back in the past 40 years as being complicit with this. And we can't think for ourselves and we're being influenced by it. And it, it doesn't make it easier for us to go off just to just say we're, we've made no progress. Doesn't help right. it no easier. But, that, yeah. but that's, that's a total mischaracter. Is it? I mean, it's just, I, I've never said anything so simplistic in my life. Uh, what I've said is when you try to say that you're going to quantize gravity, what you're talking about is quantizing geometry. 
And what happened was the most romantic backfire possible in the sciences is that you instead geometrize the quantum. And the great legacy of these people is that they figured out that quantum field theory really has nothing to do with physics. Physics, as we understand it, the physical world is one input to the quantum field theory machine. Quantum field theory is really about waves on waves. And that happens in cobordism theorem and algebraic topology. It happens in conformal theory that has nothing to do with um, the physical dimensions and realms. What we found out was fascinating because, in fact, it backfired. And there's nobody who would like to celebrate all the good that Digraph and Natty and Ed and company did in this story, including the celebration of the toy models. The problem that I'm having is that they reordered the field. I mean, if you – this is a, a book that I keep very close to me um, because – it's a conference that happened at the exact moment before the anomaly cancellation. And Murray Gelman gave a, a um, keynote address at Shelter Island 2, the, con the conference that was supposed to recapitulate the 1947 conference that got physics back on track. So they're trying to get back the, ma the magic. And he says, as usual, solving the problems of one era has shown up the critical questions of the next. The very first ones that come to mind looking at the standard theory of today, he's talking about the standard model, uh, why this particular structure for the families, in particular, why flavor chiral with left and right-handed particles being treated differently? Why three families? That's a generalization of Robbie's famous question. How many sets of Higgs bosons are there in the standard theory? And why SU3 cross SU2 cross U1? Why those symmetries? Now, in all of those cases, those are classical questions. And what you see, and the reason that it's important that your generation know its history, is, is that one of the things that happens in marketing is, is that you have a product and you have to create a problem so that your product fills that hole, right? And this is what happens with the 76 trombones in the Music Man, right? You've got a problem and it's pool and the solution is music. And okay, what these people did to the field was that they reordered our concept of what our principal problems were around the problems that they thought they were most likely to solve. And I don't need them to be in pain. I don't want to see, I'm not particularly vindictive, but what I do want to see is tell me about all the people that uh, whose careers were terminated during this. Tell me what they were working on. Should we have them back? Shall we have conferences devoted to uh, what if quantum gravity doesn't exist? Shall we actually ask, because what you talked about with heterodoxy is, is that you're usually talking about orthodoxy plus epsilon. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say sterile neutrinos. Well, that's not really very heterodox. And then you, maybe you go a little bit. I'm going to say that there are multiple axions to solve the strong CP problem, plus, you know, create cosmic birefringe. Whatever these things are, um, they're not really what we're talking about in terms of heterodoxy. And it's just, it's very important to either impose these rules on this group of people or to relax the rules for other people so that we can have truly different ideas. Because I think that we will probably find that over the last 50 years, there were many ideas that will fall into the final theory that were pushed aside into the dustbin by this group. I mean, I, again, I want to take it back to <clears throat> what I think is, is certainly not to invalidate anything you've said, Eric, but I think that that might be parochial to the extent that it may involve certain members of the community who aren't affiliated with these three-letter organizations like IAS or MIT or what have you, <laughs> NSA. Uh, but 
but I think what's more interesting, and you know, Dan is free to opine any way he likes and respond to you. But but the point, you know, I think is is how many flowers should be blooming right now? I mean, there are you mentioned a couple of different you know alternatives, a loop quantum gravity, and other things. Uh, at what point do you would you have to say? The portfolio should be fully diversified, and we should actually devote, you know, equal, uh, you know, amounts of, oh, of nobody's of attention. saying that, Brian. Right, but I know. But now you're saying, well, we should have, you know, hold these people to account. Well, first of all, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think Edward Witten's published something on string theory in, in a decade. I mean, the last thing I saw is that he wants us to go visit a black hole to see if there's a one microsecond time delay at the end edge of, you know, five AU or something like that. Um, I don't know to what extent he's still holding sway over the field uh, that that you're in. Eva is actually much much younger. What did Coomeran say? What did Coomeran say? Yeah, he was on the podcast two years ago, and I confronted him as all podcasts are legal. Podcasters are legally obligated to do, <laughs> and I said, "What about this claim that there's been no, uh, you know, experimentally falsifiable things predicted by by string theory?" He said, "Oh no, no, you're wrong," and you can go back and see this episode. But, but didn't you ask about like what he wanted on his tombstone? Oh, what do you want on his tombstone? Yeah, that and uh, and uh, Michio Kaku, uh, very similar answers. The, okay, the so equations of string theory, right? So, but but let me let me just finish. One thing that he did say is, well, no, it's not true. String theory does predict the mass of the electron shall be between ten to the minus thirty-five Planck masses and ten to the minus one Planck masses. And yeah, that sounds all funny. We can laugh about, it. Uh, but you know, in, in in you know logarithmic space, it's it's not it's not terrible. Uh, I, I guess the point being. To what extent were something like loop quantum gravity, which many people, including my friend Carlo Rovelli, who's been on the podcast many times, uh, he has said that, yeah, there are challenges, there are experimental falsifications of some of the claims of loop quantum gravity, in particular for, for uh, propagation of velocity versus electromagnetic frequency of distant quasars. But, but the point I guess I'm, I'm trying to make is if you were the director of the IAS, you, you know, you yeah. clean house um, – you know, is it really? I mean, would string theory have have you know just yes or no? Simply yes or no. Would string theory have a place in there? Yes. Would loop quantum gravity have a place in there? Would geometric unity have the the the, the I primary? I don't think we position? need to worry about permanent positions. I think that the key issue. I mean, let me let me just say some things that people won't associate with me. In general, the string theorist part of the quantum gravity. I have to use string theory there because it's it's they're smarter, and that's uncomfortable. But they're really, really smart, and they're really, really good at quantum field theory, you know? And I see that, and I'm happy about that. What's more, many of them are really good at geometry, and it's incredibly impressive. And I think that it, it does wonderful things for the field to have progress going on in the gym on the treadmill when you're not actually running a marathon. So in a certain sense, um, in that particular sub-community, the people are in extremely good shape. It's Generals have been playing war games for 50 years because there were no war games to fight. They have a distorted sense of what being a general actually is because they haven't seen action. But I would never want these people driven out of the field. I don't, I don't know anyone I praise as much as Edward Witten for his contributions principally to geometry and to the structure of quantum field theory, although not the quantum field theory that we seem to live within. So I don't think that that's really the argument that I'm making. And I think that part of the problem is, is that this is a very clickbait thing about, you know, string theory is BS versus no string theory, the power and the glory of string theory. It's of no interest to anyone. What you said about loop quantum gravity, though, was interesting. I asked Lee Smolin about this, who's a, who's a friend. He said, yeah, the original hope for loop quantum gravity is not realized. Without other ideas, this does not work. It doesn't carry the day and it doesn't behave as expected. Now say what you want about Lee Smolin, and I'll be honest, a lot of 
people in that other community in quantum gravity say incredibly negative things about Lee Smolin. Mm -hmm. But he behaved properly. There's no need for a tribunal when a leader of the field says, you know what? We were exuberant, and they were exuberant. We were optimistic. They were optimistic. But they didn't go about with this manifest destiny nonsense. And they can reflect and say, you know what? It doesn't work the way we thought. Or we can't get fermions into the theory comfortably or something like that. And I, I really think that we have to understand the difference. That the ethics in loop quantum gravity are much better than the ethics uh, in its competitor. Well, I think, I mean, I again, I, I, I think where I push back is just, I think you're often identifying understanding quantum field theory with doing quantum gravity research. Um, and I, for me, like, I would say the young people in the so you want the older veterans of the field to say they were wrong, and that no, may no, never no, happen. No, no, no. Maybe they're not. I wrong. think if you, I want them to face okay. the issue. But I think if you talk to the like, I think the response you're you're talking about, which is like, do people see the challenges? I right. think what a lot of younger people would say, the lessons that have been learned from string theory, is that we didn't understand quantum field theory well enough to be ready to jump. Like we've learned so many lessons about just quantum field theory that we were kind of out over our skis thinking, oh, we've got this quantum field theory thing sure. solved. We should be jumping to quantum gravity. And we've learned so much about quantum field theory. And quantum field theory is certainly relevant to, you know, data and real life and cosmology and right. that's matter. it covers everything sure. it's the you know to steal a headline from a from an article in the CERN courier it's the like the theory of theories right it like okay. organizes not just like one theory but sort of how all theory, theories fit to, together so what is the theory of theories so so this was used as a title to an article about effective field theory oh, but it was just understand that a lot of what we've been learning is you know what is the space of theories that are self-consistent? Like, what do, what are the rules? And part of the, you know, why was, you know, like, one of the things we got out of string theory, what, like, the string community was ADS-CFT. And what that told us is a lot of things that we had been thinking were, people had been thinking were problems that were going to be solved by the string or really phenomena that was, in, that was living in an everyday quantum field theory oh, that we hadn't fully understood. And I would say my generation, probably more like a lot of people who I think you might look at and say, you know, based on their training, like who their PhD advisors were, you might say, well, that's a string theorist. And I would say, I don't think they ever do string theory. Like they do quantum field theory and they no, do quantum field theory relevant. That. They've moved to that. But, you but I think some never did it. Like literally at no point in their graduate career, at any point, they have a like so myself i did string theory when i was younger i would not characterize myself as a string theorist or right. someone who ever uses string theory i nobody told me i had to do string theory i well you, I was you there. have characterized yourself as somebody who finds it useful in what you do and Absolutely. so you, you are using string but be, because i learned because the the, the maybe to, to phrase what was useful is right. that string theory was always characterized as you know what is it? What's the problem of quantum gravity we're trying to solve? We're trying to prob solve problems about the fact that the thing doesn't make sense at short distances. And of course, all these things are supposed to make sense at long distances because they're good effective field theories. We don't like, unless we're doing ultra short distance physics, it has, you know, everything should just make sense in some reasonable way. And, but I learned when I was learning about loop quantum gravity, that's nowhere in sight, right? Because there, and like, I, there were so many lessons I didn't learn that were just basic lessons about, you know, how should theories be organized? Organized that were never in the loop quantum gravity playbook, at least when I was learning it. And so, so, yeah, what I learned doing string theory was like, I really learned effective field theory. I learned when is there a problem that 
I, sh I actually have to worry about string theory too. And what I mostly learned is that no. list is very, very small. No, of and course. And you can do a lot of really, really exciting and cool stuff that's I would call fundamental but look, without ever talking about I've looked at your it. career, and to the best of my understanding, your career is, is a stool with three basic legs, one of which is cosmology, where you're going to get data from all the great new instruments that we're putting towards the heavens. Uh, second thing is effective theory so that you're going to reduce everything to something which, uh, you know, at some particular scale is, you know, very cleanly defined and you can work with it. Um, and then the other thing is uh, some amount of particle theory where you're going to hope to use the cosmological through the effective theory to elucidate the nature of the fundamental fields uh, as waves in collision. Yeah, so that's, I see, your particular gambit, and I'm 100% supportive of it. You did refer to yourself as a young person. You're over 40, if I'm not mistaken. Unfortunately. Okay, yes. so you're not a young person. I'm, I think I just crossed the threshold by academic standards. Of being no, 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 no. But, you know, <laughs> Dirac's old thing about a physicist who passed the 30th year, this is elongated in part because of the fact that we've deviated from scientific norms. We don't have 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are running the field the way I think of as normal. I think there are way too many people in the field, to be honest, when you're asking what would you do. And I feel that of those people, they're not properly arrayed across um, first. Well, they're not fermionic. There are plenty of people who, like, Brian Green feels no need to query Peter Woit, who's putting forward a twister theory based on the group SU4 and its inclusion of SU3 cross U1 uh, as a subgroup um, in twister space with a weak continuation to SU2 cross SU2, where one of the two halves gives the weak force and therefore gives you an idea of the asymmetry. You have to read your colleague's stuff, whether you like it or not, to be a good colleague. You don't have to read all of it, but when you, when you can't put in 45 minutes, and there was a, a piece of French that was between 45 and minutes that I didn't say on air, um, and you say, I'm too busy, and then we catch you playing ping pong in the lounge, or you're going to drinking, or you're writing a blog about nothing in particular, it's completely disingenuous. Now, another example of this is Garrett Lisi. Garrett Lisi is a snicker. <laughs> Garrett Lisi, you mean that thing that Dissler dismantled? Okay. Uh, no, it doesn't work. I don't think it works. It's got tons of interesting, good ideas in it. And this condescension against individual research programs where somebody has a really interesting idea. And I think both Peter Woit and Garrett are wrong and it's not going to work, but I'll be goddamn if I'm going to stand back and say, because I think I can see why it's not going to work. I'm going to pretend that you have no ideas and I'm going to slag you behind your back as a colleague. And I'm going to, you know, dunk and drag on, on, on Twitter. Uh, this is toxic behavior. And so what I think is, is that we have very few idiosyncratic programs that are able to even share a stage. There's no point of contact where I have an unusual bookmark in this book. It's a, yeah, it's a dollar. This is a dollar signed by Sheldon Glashow, where I won it uh, in a 20 minute discussion in his office. And it took him 27 years to... 27, I'm going to turn into an NFT and make bajillions. Um, it took him 27 years to acknowledge that he'd lost the bet on whether G2, G2 contained SU3. Now, I have no idea why that took 27 years. I like Shelly. We have a good relationship. 
But the fact is, you can't have people saying, oh, I'm late to pick up my kids. You know, I have to go out to dinner or whatever, and never actually make eye contact with the fact that they're not giving real answers. And, and by the way, I would love to actually talk physics rather than about physics. But what I'm trying to say is that our meta problem is, is that with all the money floating around, nobody holds a conference saying, you know, the last 40 years, WTF, let's, uh, with a bunch of different theories, like, does anybody else have an idea? And I can, I can assure you, I can go you know, on very large platforms and talk about very concrete ideas. I can try to tell you why I believe that there are three generations of matter, why it's chiral, et cetera, et cetera. And I promise you that the very weird behavior is that people don't take it seriously because what they're really trying to do is not ask questions. They're really trying to say, how do I make this problem go away so I can get back to the cargo cult science that I've made a career around inside of a large community? That's what's dangerous. See, I, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I mean, I would say that a lot of people aren't going to engage with. I mean, the idea that what we need to do is find the right way to unify the forces. I think is just, as you said, it's been unproductive, and a lot of people don't find that that's what, how they're like. That, you know, there are weird hints from nature, right? Like cosmological constant is a weird hint from nature. Sure. And like we'd like to, is we'd like that unification or that unification no, no, wouldn't but, work. But Daniel, if I ask you. What is your best guess as to why there appear to be three generations of matter? Would you say you have a guess? No, I wouldn't. I mean, I would say there are many people who have worked hard on coming up with models. All seem many seem plausible. Like it could be because, like I have no particular opinion. I, and I don't think that we're going to find the answer. So if somebody and, came up to me who could pass sort of a basic competency test and said, I, I think I know why there are three generations of matter. Mm -hmm. I would find that fascinating. Brian and I were on the phone. We were talking about this issue. And Brian said, well, what if I were to tell you of something so exciting that it has you know, seven sigma, this, that, which is, to me, would, would you race down to San Diego? I said, sure. And I think he wasn't prepared for that answer. There is something about the excitement of believing things, trying things, and caring about your, what your colleagues believe. Do you have any high conviction beliefs about the extension of the standard model? So I don't have my high conviction belief is that anything that expands the standard model will look like a, 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 something so that's an effective theory, field theory at low energy. So if I'm going to look for hints, experimental hints that are going to tell me which way right. the world actually works, my strategy is going to be write down everything I could imagine that would look like a change to the effective theory of the standard model and go look for that. Okay. And that's, that is what most, but, uh, most experimental that, programs but that are looking But for. that avoids the question. Do you personally have any high conviction beliefs? And, and I'll extend it. Do you think we have anything wrong in the standard model, not just in terms of the Lagrangian and its consequences, but in terms of how we talk about it? And do you have any high conviction beliefs for what extends it and what is likely to be true? That, that are really things like this. I believe. Can you say the phrase? Okay, this, I this, believe. I believe that the that the the universe is Lorentz invariant at short distances. That the whatever unifies the standard model is not breaking Lorentz invariance. Um, Essentially, just just about that. If you observe, if we were to observe something yes. cosmologically or laboratory, that would break your conviction or it would cause you to, yes. to reveal excitingly new research. You, you, you believe in relativity. Yes, absolutely. That is not very bold. I've, okay. 
Um, but I mean, most, by the way, sorry, most, most things that are being proposed as extensions to the standard model by definition are, are well, they might they're, be wrong. Most of them are wrong. How do you know, Eric? We haven't looked for action. Well, because they can't all be correct. They're not all compatible. No, some of them are mutually exclusive. Right. All I'm saying is this is it's to say that the universe is manifestly uh, Lorentz invariant is an interesting claim that could be falsified. And by falsification, I think that would excite you. That wouldn't depress oh, you. That wouldn't ruin your day. It would, would totally be. change how I but think. Doesn't this, I love your puppy point. Puppies are adorable. Ice cream is delicious. And I understand. Mom yeah. and apple pie are, are no, good but, things. But, but there are, I mean, I think I think that's a case where people have legitimately proposed ideas sure. that break laws. And they are interesting ideas. So, uh, you know, someone who had an idea that broke this principle that was within the kind of traditional community, but sure. really broke away from it was uh, Peter Harava with his, you know, non-Lorentz variant solutions to gravity, uh, his proposal. And again, like, it was an interesting idea. I didn't look at that and go, I understood what he's doing. Right. We read those papers. Everyone's like, so you, read, you read the paper. You, you, like, but I also don't think it's the way the world works. Uh, and again, I also. That's not what I'm talking about. When it, like if Zhao came out with something, maybe you look at it and then you say, okay, that's pretty wild. I don't buy it, but I understand but what I he's think, doing. I, but I think, again, the difference between Petter, who was definitely deviating away from the community, was not that they're like, he's a card carrying member of the community, is that he was able to communicate his idea in a way not, that made sense to everyone. And, but that, but I guess what I would say is like, you're asking me to take a definitive position about a theory we could no, never no, test. No, no. I'm I actually you're don't... a theoretical physicist. Yeah, absolutely. You, you are, you know, and to be fair to you, cause I'm not, there's no gotcha or zinger here. I see you as mostly a cosmologist who is keeping the door open to particle theory through the conduit of effective theory. Right. And I mean, that may not be fair because I've only been studying your stuff for a day. <laughs> I understand. I, I guess what I would say is that I know effect, effective field theory is life, right? Like it's like, it's like, it's how the, it's how oh everything we organize. It's just, it's all we see. Right. I'm living here in this, like, there's not like Newton's laws weren't wrong. No, 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 They're wait, just an wait, effective wait, wait, theory wait. relevant to if our, we were, if we were to talk about biology, right? So we okay. have, the, we have the stratification. We have cytology, the study of cells below. Then we have histology, the study of tissue. Then we have physiology above that. And we have the organization and anatomy. And if you stay down at the level and saying, you know, it would be absolutely irresponsible for us to speculate into different regimes because we understand that we don't actually have information. We've learned the lesson of Ken Wilson very well. That would be pretty disappointing. If you think about, for example, Wheel of Fortune, there are these one-letter solves where somebody actually guesses the entire puzzle from a single letter. Look up a guy named Rufus, for example. I understand. Now, my claim is, is, is that the, the, the dark side of the genius of Ken Wilson, and by the way, Ken Wilson is a good example. Like We just lost Jeff Beck as a guitarist. He was every professional electric guitarist's favorite guitarist, but he wasn't everybody's favorite guitarist who didn't play guitar. In a certain sense, Ken Wilson... Uh, walks on water within the competent community of physics researchers. But there's a dark side also, uh, just the way Jeff Beck maybe put too much emphasis on the whammy bar, uh, of pushing everything into this realm where it's denuded of much of its meaning. Like if I were to say to you that the Higgs field shows up in effective theory as a spin zero fundamental scalar, but I don't think that that's its purpose. I think that it actually belongs to and the way in which it's disguised so that its spin appears different uh, than its naive spin, which is its function as a, as a part of a connection, uh, that's something in which uh, effective theory is not going to necessarily point to that because effective theory tends to show you uh, this picture that is often denuded of higher level structures because we're now too afraid to guess. No, I, the, the idea is just that it 
you can have as wild a variation of the difference of the origin of two theories as you like. And if I limit my observations to some energy scale right. that's set by colliders or whatever I can do, that the only way that I can tell them apart is by the parameters of the long distance theory. So now the parameters can be really useful hints. So in the 60s, Weinberg guessed at asymptotic freedom, which was that the idea that they're like, you know, the theory is really made up of, you know, quarks and things that look like microscopic particles just bouncing around, even though they live inside a proton. He guessed at this because of the specific relationships between certain of the couplings of, you know, nuclear physics, because we couldn't go and look inside of the proton at that point in history. Right. So it's absolutely true that through this lens, you can discover exactly as you're saying, you can within this lens say, ah, there's a pattern here and I can use the tools at my disposal to say the only way to get this pattern points at some deeper, deeper uh, structure. So that's exactly what we do. So, for example, why proton decay experiments were so exciting, because even though they're a low energy experiment, we they would tell us about physics at very high energies because we only know a few ways to create proton decay. Or this is why people are really excited about neutrino masses, because neutrino ma masses hint at something going on at, you know, extremely high energies that we'll never, ever be able to probe in the lab. But if you don't kind of, on the other hand, like, if I write down a theory that only changes the, the gears of how the universe works on some scale that I can never observe, my only hope is to see it through the pattern. Yeah, of what's but going but on then you're, mis you're, 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 you're mislearning the lesson of the baryon, which is that the baryon isn't decoded into the Lagrangian, the quarks are, but that, uh, you know, I, I don't even know if we're talking allowed to say infrared slavery with a new uh, physics conscience. Uh, but, you know, the, the issue is, is that uh, protons and neutrons are not what is seen in the Lagrangian. You have to actually unpack them, uh, unpack the fundamental constituents to get the observable constituents. Now, that lesson, when overlearned, which is what I'm concerned your community has done, uh, becomes inhibitory. And everybody gets enervated because nobody wants to be the fool who didn't learn the lesson of effective theory and renormalization. And that's what what's concerning me is, is that in general, we have a group of people who are incredibly worried about their union card being respectable. And when they're heterodox, they're heterodox in the most mild and unhelpful way, particularly if you have a metastable state where small uh, perturbations don't work out very well. And so in all of these situations, you know, when I try to engage you in terms of if you want to actually talk physics on a podcast, we always talk around physics, we talk about physics, but we don't actually say, well, what do you believe? What do you, you know, what, what are the high conviction bets? And I'll, I'll say something more. I think you're an extremely good scientist. I've read some of your stuff. I don't aspire to be focused on good scientists because I believe that we have a confusion that great science is just good science turned up to 11. And I think if you, you know, I, I had this conversation with Jim Watson. His basic point was, we were not, Watson Crick were not good scientists in Jim's view. He said Rosalind Franklin was, and the reason she didn't get the double helix was not because it was stolen, which there are certainly issues, but because she refused to spend a day decamped into the idea that the Maltese cross from the X-ray crystallography represented a helix. And so his point was, our search space is tiny because we're only looking for helical models and her search space was enormous because she correctly viewed that that particular pattern was not sufficient to narrow it down 
but I, I mean, as someone watching is just dispassionate, but has some knowledge of you and in, uh, in the field. I mean, you've ruled out, you know, just in words today, and not to mention previous discussions we've had, um, alternative theories to to you know anything but your own you know personal conviction, which no. is that she. So you've ruled out E eight, you've ruled out Wolfram, you've ruled out no. loop quantum gravity. No. Not saying ruled it out like they shall be taken behind the woodshed. No, no brother. No. Well, so how much time? I think we. Should, I think we should be invested no... in cellular automata. I think we really need to study the large exceptionally groups inside of the Tits Freudenthal structure. Theories of everything. I think that Peter White's theory to begin with SU three, which is the one part of the symmetries that doesn't have another name because U one is also spin two, SO two, the circle. Same thing with SU two is the three sphere spin three. SU three is unique in that it doesn't have another name, and so he begins with that and he sticks. Uh, basically U3 inside of SU4. And I think it's a great idea, and I don't want to be mischaracterized. Uh, I am the only person pushing forward GU. I am also pushing forward, and I was asked recently uh, by the Institute for Arts and Ideas, they wanted to say, well, tell us now about GU after you've done all this service to our field. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I would rather tell you about my competitors in idiosyncratic fermionic space. It's you guys who don't do that. So please don't put on me that I'm simply a proponent that is always pushing my product and selling from the stage. Far from it. Uh, I don't think selling from it, but it's just from a pragmatic standpoint. Daniel's got a limited amount of theoretical bandwidth. My students do as well. Um, it's not that what, much, Brian. Well, it's, 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 no, it's I, I agree with you. I agree with you that that they, to hear Sabine say, well, she doesn't have time to look at your theory and Garrett's theory and Wolfram's theory. She doesn't want to get sucked in. She doesn't want to, but it, that doesn't prove that it's right. I mean, it's not it's not evidence that they're no, but that correct, leaves right? the wrong impression. Right, and that's maybe not as collegial as 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 it could it's be. But there's collegial. a limited no, there's a limited amount. So the question is for working, you know, card carrying as you call them, union members. Yeah, I mean, what is it about? about what you're doing that is most exciting and most interesting to you and the reason that keeps you getting up in the morning and yeah. thinking about it in the middle of the night what what questions or what what contributions are so interesting and promising along the obviously promising from the current research direction you're pursuing okay so i mean what have i spent the past two years working on is trying to understand the sitter space now the sitter space seems to be the universe we live in it's also what, what do you mean by that as in the expansion of the universe right now Looks, is approximately it's approximately just sitter okay so but there's a big difference okay um yes but at the level of approximation that the universe no, seems to be to sitter we did not understand how to calculate things in the sitter and there are people who claim that you know the sitter was fundamentally unstable because of various things that they couldn't calculate and this proved that like you know it's impossible to have a positive cosmological constant for this reason or, or the other and so i what i want to like why do I use effective field theory? Because many of the calculations that people were saying prove that this were like, they were instantly, you could see the mistake in the calculation. So as you say, like, yes, effective field theory, you can be have your blinders on to what might be interesting. Sure. But more often than not in my career, 100%. it's like the way you say, hey, that calculation have a mistake in it. And like, all, every time it's a mistake. It's like getting right? rid of pseudo tensors. It's a very good place to catch errors. Absolutely. So I don't, I am in no way saying like, it's not interesting to think about things that, yeah, I'd be the first person excited about a thing that doesn't look like it lives in effective field theory, right? And so that would be awesome. And I have friends who, you know, explore, you know, modifications to quantum mechanics, and maybe that means or things that look like they violate the rules. 
those are extremely exciting and interesting things. A lot that people do seriously consider. But again, if you don't start from, but if I have a theory that fits a set of rules, it has to follow the structure. Right. More often than not, you just do calculations wrong. Right. And it's like, yeah, you spent five years doing calculation or in some cases in this interspace, like it was 30 years where people calculated things over and over again and literally learned nothing. There's tons of calculations and we learned no lessons from it. And the part of the point of effective field theory is that like it just organizes what are interesting calculations, sure. what the answer should look like. And if something violates effective field theory, then at least you can go like, but what, like where was the step that violated the rules? And if, it did, if nothing, none of the steps violate the rules, then you've got a problem. And so what I would say for, for me, like the what's the ultimate goal of understanding decider space? Like it is getting back to like what did the beginning of time look like? What is the space? What are the space of possible universes? And like, is the multiverse a well-defined thing? Does it even make sense? Like, these are questions that are enormous. And, but we can't answer, like, there are people who want to jump to the, like, how do we define internal inflation? And they make up rules for calculating. And they make up this and they make up that. And they say, well, in my toy model with this rule and that rule, it does this. It's like, we, we don't know enough to play those games. And I guess that would be my point of view. You're like, in response to your, your comment about great scientists, for, sure. um, is that the challenge is ultimately going to be like, you know, there are moments in history that just call for careful analysis of the laws we have. Well, right? Renormalization so, like, in a certain sense. Absolutely. That. And the same with like Lagrangian mechanics, Hamiltonian mechanics. Like there's a huge time between Newton and Newton. And changes the, the question, laws. The question, and the science that happened there was super important. The question is, what time is it? Is it time for a conservative revolution? Is it time for a wild-eyed revolution? And I don't think it's responsible for anyone to say, I know what time it is, unless they have a very good reason for saying that they know what time it is. So I think that, to, to your earlier point, you want to let some conservative people uh, hug the shore and say, maybe we have a small error Um and you, you, you may also, I mean, the, the, the dressed and bare mass of the electron is a perfect example of what seemed to be a small error that cost two decades. So at a certain level, that's completely legitimate. And, and what I see you doing with effective field theory is in some sense using it as a substitute for experiment, which is how do we test whether our wild ideas actually make a certain kind of sense? And so in a, I think it's very responsible and part of the good science rap that I'm, I'm sticking you with is that you're trying to do something where you can't repeat the Big Bang. You can't run an experiment in the lab where, where everything goes right. And effective theory is, is a great way of sorting some amount of wheat from some amount of chaff, provided that you always keep in mind that it also carries certain sorts of distortions that bias us against bold guesses because many of our structures recur at various different strata of the effective uh, stratification. No, I I do not disagree with that at all, and I completely agree that the you know even in our corner of cosmology, like I would not characterize myself as a string theorist, but I have found string theory useful because sometimes, even though I have not found anything that cannot be expressed as effective field theory, like it does push us in a weird direction. There's like that idea came well, out of left field and suitably reinterpreted. It was a really cool thing to look. This for is what Nima said to me about Rita Schwingerfield's and the Veloswanziger problem. Is he said that. It's very tricky to couple Rita Schwinger to external uh, to internal degrees of freedom without having superluminal problems. String theory showed us a way to do that. And so 
whether or not you're a string advocate or not a string advocate, uh, you at least want to help yourself to the bounty that came from this theory, which is one of the reasons why I'm absolutely not for ending support for string theory. But the part of the problem is that this space is so polluted by stupidity. The world's smartest people acting like jackasses is that we're not having this conversation fresh and new. We're having this conversation after not even wrong, after, you know, and, and part of the problem is, is that the field became not even Pauli. Pauli was a dick and he was famously a dick. He was a witty dick. He was a very high, you know, he had very high standards. Uh, I don't know, you know, Switzerland, they're very precise over there. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's a terrible person for most people to emulate because it's basically put down physics. And so, you know, what I really believe is you're trying to do good science. You're a new generation. I don't want you enmeshed in some of these battles, but I also don't want you on the field of battle sort of muddling the stuff and saying, well, there are actually a lot of interesting things. We have certain things that we need to get to in order to make sure that as this generation before me exits the stage, they leave the situation like the cat in the hat. They've made a complete mess of things, and it's important that they straighten things up before mom gets home. Yeah, I, but I guess I would, I would, I don't disagree. There are a lot of things that need to be cleaned up to make it, you know, but I think that it comes in many forms. And the problem is that the, the, the problem is that it's like, you can say, oh, it'd be good if, you know, people came and fixed it. It is like a handful of people who, whose opinions, like just saying things carry any weight. Most people, it's the accumulation of a life of work in the community that eventually move the field. So, like an example is like scattering amplitudes. Like you know, there's an like incredibly great physicists who spent their entire lives working on it, and the way that they like their results became part of the rest of the community because of the sheer weight of what they had been doing. And it was not because it was like they get a compelling talk or because like people that you know, but it was like really that it was just like eventually they just solved so many problems that people were like, yeah, and look at the great. Like this double copy problem is really exciting. Absolutely. And the amplitude. And, so, right. So, but, but again, two, what I would say is like, for that. like, but, but, but that's where I see that, like, I don't like your point of view is like the field is going to change when these people have to exit the stage and like, and I think to be honest, like, I think a lot of people younger than them already see these problems. Okay. And it's just that, like, they're like the way they're not, they don't have Ed Witten's name. They don't have one's no, name, no, no, but, but they see what you're talking about. And the way that that's going to manifest itself is that in 20 years, you're going to look yeah, back and say, that's what the field Many became. of these people don't know the hypercharge or the weak ice of spin on the fundamental fields. And I, I hate to say this this way, but I, I've dealt with people who are quite a bit younger than, than I am, who are working in this area of fundamental physics, and I start to talk to them about the field content of the standard model. And it's astounding what they say. They say things like, oh yeah, I remember this in graduate school. What the F do you mean? You're talking about the fundamental constituents of nature, and you can't remember the charge on, uh, on the strange quark. You can't remember whether it's you know or up or down. There is some problem in which People have actually departed physics. I, I think. I think. I, I know exactly what you're saying, and I. I know there are phenomena like that. So a version of that, which I think is a fair criticism, yeah. is that there was 
I don't know the names, but I've heard the story that a, a um, someone was up for a PhD. To, the, they were in their PhD defense, and they were asked, "What is the wavelength of visible light?" And the person said, "One meter." And the, the, the examiner said, "Do I look blurry to you?" And like that's the kind of like you should have real world intuition about like in that case is very obvious. I mean, I would say like I can't. I don't memorize the periodic table. I mean, periodic table is obviously no, 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 important, but it's not the. But but at some at some it's point, fifteen or six. 16 entries in a column vector. But again, like you're asking, like, could I, if you woke me up in the middle of the night, could I reproduce every single term in the, in the standard model? Like, you know, like, I don't know that I could, I could get, mo I could get most of it. I could get most of the structure, but it doesn't Chat matter to me in my, in my particular research. Wait, 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 because... wait a second. I, I want to understand. You're not carrying around a copy of the representation theory of SU3 cross SU2 cross U1 on 15 or 16 dimensional complex space. I'm carrying it in a particle data book. Look, I have it in, not, not, not as a spot quiz. There's not, no spot quiz because yeah. I can. I know exactly where to look it up whenever I, I need it. Knows the Klebsch Gordon code. I know what most of the terms are, but if you had to get me like what is the exact. Why is it important? For the same reason that memorizing a poem is important because you can always look it up, but you're not going to be able to have it. Uh, if it's not cached close to the prefrontal cortex, you're not going to be able to make use of it in real time. It's essential. And, and I'm not talking, by the way, about understanding all the hadronic resonances or um, anything like that. What I'm trying to say is the sense of, oh, yeah, that's that stuff I learned in graduate school. Oh, I, is I, I think to, 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 to answer for Dan that he doesn't need what Feynman said would apply. I mean, Feynman would disagree with you and say, what I can't derive, I don't understand. He didn't say what I can't memorize, I don't understand. It's not a question of that. It's a question of, for example, let's forget the exact, you know, weak hypercharge assignments. Sure. You could write down uh, the pseudocode of the standard model Absolutely. of Lagrangian. Absolutely. For sure. So that's, first of all, I'm talking about people who can't do that. Oh, I, I, I understand what you mean. And I do agree that there's a problem. But at the same time, like, I do, like, it's... I think there's the like, should we do what the standard model? Should like, just as an intellectual endeavor, should we remember? Should we pass down the things that we've learned? We should definitely make sure the standard model. I'm is saying that the younger people Absolutely. that we're discussing, the consequence of not having this reconciliation, by the way, uh, of understanding what quantum gravity did to this field, is is that we have a number of people who are not intact in their research careers, who are not in a position. If the answer came screaming across their field of view, they wouldn't necessarily recognize. But I, I would say I would say there's similarly a problem it has nothing to do with quantum gravity, which was that the response to all of this is that particle physics has become divorced from experiment, and the problem is that particle theorists don't know what's going on in experiment, and that is pushed to the point that most young people that I talk to who are particle phenomenologists now, where there are people who previously would have known the standard model, sure. have it written down. Yeah, their feeling now is that like. For them to get a job, and again, is this actually true or just what they perceive? Right. It's probably some of both, but they feel they have to have an experiment with their name on it. Because otherwise, people will say, oh, they're not in touch with the real so world. Let's get, and we so need now, to get you guys more money. That would be fantastic. No, that's what we uh, – look, but, I always say what we need to do is to give my detractors, my uh, people who are not critics but actually assholes, more money. Because what you're seeing is the dynamics – of hunger game mentality inside of physics. And as a result of this, we're not able to behave constructively. We're not able to behave collegially. We, we separate ourselves so that certain people on stage never encounter a critic. 
I, I was at SciFu in 2011, I believe, where Joe Polchinski and Eva Silverstein were talking about string theory in one of the rooms. And I went in and I listened to Joe's version of the history of string theory and I raised my hand. I said, there are like seven or eight things that you just said that are not true. And I went through them and Joe, to his credit, said, yep, yep, that's fair. Yeah, that's true. That, that happened the way you said it, not the way I said it. And I watched Eva go white, right? She's just like, she's going to have to speak. And she had previously prepared slides that duplicated many of the same claims. You know, one of which, for example, is that it wasn't that we never thought about higher dimensional brains. It was called string theory because there were actually arguments that those higher dimensional brains were guaranteed not to be part of the theory. Mm -hmm. And so once you actually go through the reconciliation where you say, how are, let's talk about the eight times we were wrong. We said that there were a finite number of theories, then there turned out to be a continuum where those things were extreme. You know, I, I can go on and on and on. In all of those situations, by not forcing people to say, yeah, we were wrong. And, and, and Joe Polchinski is a really good example. I was pleased to see him on your list, not for string theoretic issues or quantum gravity, but because of the effective theory. And he was a good enough scientist to say, you know what, you got me, you're right. He also said to me something which, you know, I, I want to be in the world. He said, you, Eric, talk a lot about quantum gravity and string theory. And sometimes I don't think string theory exists. And I said, what? He said, sometimes I just think we're running subroutines for Ed. And I thought that that was a profound moment that in general, one of the things that happened, which you, you may or may not know or feel or understand, is that when you would come up with a new idea, in a previous generation, everyone would look around and say, well, what does Ed say? And it had to do with the fact that people felt that Ed was channeling the cosmos, like Jimi Hendrix played the guitar differently than everybody else. And so it was like, well, what would Jimmy say? What would Jimmy do? What would Jesus do? And you, you can't do that. You have to actually say, well, here's my opinion, and I may be wrong, um, but the fact is, we have to go back and say, why do we have this fictitious history of the last 40 years? And let's also celebrate all the great stuff, as per your thread and also my arguments, about the fact that we actually put quantum field theory on a more solid basis. It's highly geometric. And I believe that the geometrization of quantum field theory and its divorce from physics is one of the great intellectual achievements of our time, and it deserves to be celebrated. It's just like wrong way Kerrigan. You think that you're going to end up as Lindbergh, but you end up going the wrong direction. All right. Well, this has uh, been the end of round one uh, <laughs> of this uh, thriller in San Diego. Uh, I want to thank both of you guys, and uh, hopefully we can do a, a round two. But actually, I, I'm more interested in, in doing something not on camera with you guys and, and just going through some really fun physics calculations. I, I learned so much from you, uh, uh, both of you guys. And I, I think you know, Dan it, Dan is really a role model for many young physicists. I'm, I said it in the previous podcast, you know, never have I been so glad to be a Ghanaf, to be a thief, to steal you away from other universities. Because I think you really do exemplify the what a, what a theorist or what a physicist should be, not a theorist, not an experimental. You, you do both. You're interested in both and you're curious. And then that means so much to me. And Eric, of course, is, is, uh, is, is always so delightful because, you know, I used to say the way to put a physicist down and say, well, he, he or she knows the, the history of the field really well. But you, you, you put your money where your mouth is. You're very devoted to it. I don't think it's for personal attention. I don't think it's for for uh, you know the satisfaction of of fighting the previous wars as generals often do. But I I think it's it's for the sake of heaven in the sense that we are trying to understand a universe that we came into and we are like those fish that don't really know what the water is. And you guys helped clarify it for me. Simple co uh, experimental cosmology. So now I Can want I you guys say one one thing about okay. Dan. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, please. I also think that people often on the internet post these popcorn memes. Like, oh, people are going to conflict. 
And the reason that we don't get great fights on the internet that are actually productive and that help us learn about a subject is because we don't have a sense of Queensbury rules. And one of the things I just think is terrific about Dan, who I've never met before, is, is that I had a high level of trust um, that he was focused on the physics and not on scoring points, dunking and dragging. And I think people don't remember what a critic is. I believe that Dan is a certain sense my critic and I his, but the point is not to blind him or you know yeah. do small knuckle yeah. manipulation. Iron sheep jumping right. The, the key point is if you want really good conflict, you have to establish Queensbury rules by people who are not going to go for the jugular bite off an ear when they're in one of these things. And it's been an absolute pleasure to come down and have this conversation. So touch gloves, Dan. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> no, I, I would say I, I mean I I do I even that thread I would say part of. The role of a critic is not to be negative all the time. I mean, the real value of the, of the critic is by being negative at times, when they're positive, 100%. it has real real yeah. meaning. And so I view that as a, nobody's being positive out there, and let me be positive out in the world. And look forward to uh, big things to come from Dan and uh, another episode with Eric coming out soon. For now, uh, Brian Keating uh, joining you from University of California, San Diego. We're blessed to have brilliant uh, colleagues like Dan Dan Green and uh, friends on the show like Eric Weinstein. So stay tuned. More great episodes coming up. Susie Sheehy is coming out this week and uh, a special surprise guest coming next week. So stay tuned. For now, signing up. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. For updates and insights into Brian's world, please sign up for his mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a piece of space dust in the form of a meteorite fragment from the belly of an exploding star. Thanks for listening. And remember, always be curious.